The reading for this morning is from John 3, 1 to 15. Now there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How, then, will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Right, so to catch you up, our sermon series is going over the whole story of the Bible, uh, taking one important chapter at a time. And we've made it to week 10 of like 14 or something. Uh, So let's recap where we've gone so far. In the beginning, God made a good world by abolishing the chaos of non-existence and brought the world into a working order. But humans sinned, and that led them to be exiled from God's presence there. But since God wasn't present, chaos and non-existence and death began to seep back into the world. God has to be with us, or the world is unmade. So God began to restore his presence to the world by making a deal with Abraham, that his whole family would be the ones to return the presence of God to the world and that God would bless them. God gave them a king and he made an unbreakable covenant that a king from David's line would sit on the throne of Israel forever and that through that king, God would abolish chaos and evil just like he did in creation. There were only a few really big rules that they had to follow so that God could live among them and save the world and to basically be summarized as, love God and love other people like yourself. The Israelites were absolutely terrible at following those rules, so the natural punishment for their sins, just like in the garden, was exile away from God. This exile happened to them, but there were hints that the exile wasn't just going to pay for Israel's sins, but instead Israel would be suffering for the sake of the whole world. And when all that happened, All sins would be forgiven, and the whole world would be united to God once again. The world would go full circle and be returned to the way that it was always supposed to be. We saw that Israel failed in the exile, so God decided to end it by sending his son Jesus as the rightful king of Israel. Last week, we saw that God was retelling the story of Israel through Jesus. Because he did all the things that Israel did, like coming out of Egypt, miraculously passing through a river being tempted in the desert, and giving the law on a mountain, except that he did all of that without sin. In other words, Jesus was everything that Israel was meant to be. Now, this is a passage, John 3, uh, which when I read it, your eyes probably glazed over. 
it's so hard to read on exactly what Jesus is saying, because he's honestly being a little bit cryptic on purpose. There's a sense where John isn't really writing for the first-time readers of the book in this chapter. It's more like he's writing for people who have read it two or three times already. And if you know the end of the book, this passage makes a lot more sense because Jesus is making a cryptic prediction of the cross. The passage really climaxes when he says, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And once he makes sense of that, the rest of the passage really starts to fall into place. So let's start there and move backwards. About a month ago, we went through Isaiah 52 and 53, which was a passage that described how Israel in the exile was meant to suffer for the sake of the whole world. And when that was finished, all of creation would be redeemed and taken back to its original intention. Of course, in the end, Israel failed to suffer in the exile the way that God, that they were supposed to. So God sent Jesus to do what Israel was meant to do. Unfortunately, while we were there, I had to skip over one of the coolest parts in the entire passage. But luckily, it's really important to this passage, so we get to go back and hear about it. In Isaiah 52, 13, just before talking about how the servant slash Israel would be really ugly and will suffer a whole lot, Isaiah says, See, my servant will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. It's honestly a really weird tension. It starts out talking about how the servant will be really awesome and everyone will love him. And then it talks about how everyone's going to despise and reject him. I mean, which is it? The tension gets even weirder when you look back at, back at Isaiah 6, 1, when it describes God as being high and lifted up in the temple. That phrase, high and lifted up, is a really weird one. Is it high? Is it lifted up? Apparently it's both. But Isaiah uses the same weird phrase to describe the, both the suffering servant slash Israel in Isaiah 52, as well as God himself in Isaiah 6. That makes the weird tension between the suffering servant and the high and lifted up servant even weirder. The suffering servant is clearly meant to be identified with God himself. Apparently, the servant is going to be so great that it's hard to tell where the servant ends and God himself begins. But then also, that servant is going to be despised and rejected by mankind. What's going on here? There's a really similar issue that happens in the book of John. It actually shows up for the first time in this passage. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's that word lifted up again. Just like in Isaiah 52, it's not always just a word that means physically lifted off of the ground. It's a word that can also mean praised or exalted. Jesus keeps using that word all throughout John, always with this mysterious meaning that no one who's listening to him really understands. The first time you read John all the way through, I'm sure you'd be confused by pretty much every time that word is used. Um, after, after you skip over a few times that that word is used, that same word pops up in John 12, 32. It says, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And because John's probably knowing that you're confused, he says, um, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. <laughs> and of course, just like the reader, the whole crowd around him has no idea what he's saying. Jesus really is being vague here. And John is along for the ride. When you hear lifted up or exalted or praised, that sounds like a really good thing. Jesus said in John 8, 28, that when he's lifted up slash praised slash exalted, everyone will know that he is the son of God. 
When I imagine that happening in my head, I'm thinking about him floating up into the air with a bunch of angels that are singing or something like that. But actually, John gives away the game. He says that Jesus was describing by what kind of death he was going to die. By saying, when I am lifted up from the earth. Okay, cool. Mystery solved. You can even go back to Isaiah 52 when it says, my servant will be high and lifted up, and think, wow, Jesus really fulfilled that on the cross. In fact, the same word was used for lifted up in the Old Testament when it was translated to Greek. Jesus was lifted up on the cross just like the servant, but he was also suffering on the cross just like the servant. And it really fits because the way that Isaiah identifies the servant in Isaiah 52 with God in Isaiah 6 works out pretty great because Jesus happens to be God. That's really cool. When the Israelites grumbled and sinned in the wilderness, they were afflicted with a bunch of plagues, but God told Moses to lift up a serpent. And when the Israelites looked at it, they were healed of their plagues and their sins were forgiven. So Jesus being lifted up on the cross is a lot like that. If you truly look on him on the cross, your sins are forgiven and you're healed, just like Israel was supposed to. Jesus was actually able to heal the nations through his suffering. It's pretty great. And we can all go home and be satisfied with another Bible mystery solved. But there's one more question that cries out to be answered. Of all the ways that Jesus could have described his death, why would he say that he was being lifted up slash praised slash exalted? I mean, sure, he was being cryptic because he wasn't going to say, I'm going to die on a cross on Friday, April 27th uh, in 27 AD or something like that. But he could have described it in any number of other cryptic ways. And the original audience he was talking to almost certainly would have heard him saying that he will one day be praised because they didn't know that he'll be crucified. As you know, dying on the cross was about as far away from being lifted up slash praised slash exalted as you can possibly imagine. It was a death reserved for rebels and slaves. It was the most shameful thing that any person in Roman society could have possibly imagined happening to them. It's the lowest point you can possibly go. The cross was to the Romans kind of like the electric chair or the gallows are to us, except that the purpose of the gallows and the electric chair was to be more or less humane and private, whereas the purpose of the cross was to be as shameful and humiliating as possible and to make a point. You'd be stripped practically naked, suffering in agony in full view of a mocking and jeering crowd. Your body would contort in all sorts of unnatural ways. As you might imagine, this was not the death that a regular Roman citizen was meant to die. It was meant primarily for all the foreigners living in the provinces. And the whole point of this was to show the provinces who was really in charge. It was a warning to all the foreigners under the Roman heel, do not cross us, this is what will happen to you. Winners aren't crucified, only the biggest losers in Roman society are. And somehow, Jesus looks this full in the face and says, this is what it means to be lifted up slash praised slash exalted. Getting crucified on the cross is the greatest expression of God's power. That's what it means to win. And John, along with all the early Christians, were totally on board with it. They believed that when Jesus was physically lifted up on the cross, he was also metaphorically being lifted up and exalted. There was no misdirection. When Isaiah said, my servant will be high and lifted up, just like God in the temple, 
it wasn't true on some tricky technicality like, oh, you thought he would be high and lifted up in praise and exaltation. No, actually, he'll be physically lifted up on the cross. No, the Bible means what it says. Jesus was lifted up slash praised slash exalted by going to the cross. In fact, that was the greatest expression of God's glory and greatness. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the most glorious act of all time, not the most shameful. In other words, the perspective of the Bible is totally insane. Just think about what we're saying here. The cross is what God's glory looks like? The biggest winner in the history of the world was the one who died on the cross. And he wasn't a winner in spite of dying on the cross. He was a winner because he died on the cross. I mean, if what God says it looks like for someone to have power and honor is dying for others and sacrifice on the cross, and the rest of the world is doing the exact opposite of that to get power, then what does it say about how the world views power? The world thinks power is bribing people and using violence to force them to do what you want and never letting them see the smallest weakness in you. God says that power is sacrificing yourself for the sake of others in total shame and humiliation like Jesus did on the cross. That's what it looks like to be honorable. The cross convicts the world that they have totally missed what it means to be honorable and to have power. What else could be the conclusion? God's power and glory is best expressed by the cross, not by some overwhelming wrath. No wonder so many of the people who heard about Christianity early on were just flabbergasted by the idea of people worshiping a God who was crucified. This just isn't a respectable religion. Not even Nicodemus, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, who knows the law back and forth, could begin to wrap his head around that. A crucified God? It's shameful. It's even symbolized a bit in the setting of this chapter. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, And in the book of John, night and darkness are often symbols for confusion and spiritual darkness. You can see that picture, that that darkness really well on the picture in the bulletin. I tortured Kim a little bit with this this week. It's so dark, it it hardly shows up on the page. You can barely see anything. And that's part of the point the artist was making. Nicodemus was left in the darkness, and he he had no idea what was happening. Just look at the questions he's asking. Wait a minute, Jesus. Let me get this straight. How do I go back up into my mother's womb exactly? But he's the Pharisee of all Pharisees. He knows the scripture inside and out. He's the teacher of Israel. If he isn't able to get it, no one can. But when we remember that we're talking about a crucified God, you see that it is totally out of the grasp of of anyone to understand. As we saw, the cross shows that sin has completely blinded us to what it really looks like to have power and to be honorable. And if that's true, we need an absolute miracle if we are going to have any hope of following the crucified God. That's why Jesus says, you must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. And those are really loaded words when you look back at them. Because the readers of John know that Jesus actually is the king who started the kingdom of God already when he was born. Of course, there's going to be a, there has to be a miracle if Nicodemus or anyone is going to see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was literally standing right in front of him, and he can't see it. He was talking to the king. 
that's how deep the darkness goes. Now, looking back at all the cryptic words that Jesus said, they really do start to make some more sense. It makes sense that there would have to be some crazy miracle, like being born again, to actually start to believe such a thing. Worshiping a crucified God is an absurd thing to do. It's worshiping what every decent person in Rome believes to be most shameful. Nobody in their right mind would actually believe such a thing. But Jesus is saying that the crucified God is the one true God. In other words, humans have so blinded themselves with sin that they think that honor is shame and shame is honor. They think honor is living in a big house with tons of servants and... Sorry. <laughs> uh, they th- Yeah, that obey you and they, they're having lots of power. But no, that's actually shameful. Jesus says honor is sacrificing yourself for the good of those you love. It's willingly giving up your power and all your pretense to respect. Obedience, not rebellion, is the true mark of what it means to be human. It's in giving yourself away that you find yourself. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but look back at your life. Look at all the times you felt most fulfilled. Maybe it was getting married and having kids, or feeling like you were really making a difference at your job, or seeing your hard work at school paying off. In all of those times, I can bet it had something to do with giving yourself away to someone or something else. That's literally what happens in marriage. Lord knows that you give yourself away when you have kids. And you probably feel most fulfilled at work when you see someone actually benefiting from the fruits of your labor. Giving yourself away is what it means to be human. And when you refuse to do that, you end up becoming less fulfilled, not more. Think about a person who hasn't given himself in love to anyone, who sits at home and pursues his basest pleasures and makes sure only to serve himself. Is that person happy? On the other hand, Jesus giving himself up in love was the most genuinely human thing to do. And I know fully well that I'm going to use this pretty long quote next week, but this is C.S. Lewis at the end of The Problem of Pain. In self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm not only of all creation, but of all being. For the eternal word gives himself in sacrifice, and that not only on Calvary. In other words, he's saying Jesus wasn't acting out of character when he gave himself up on the cross. He says, when, when he was crucified, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, which he had done at home in glory and gladness. From before the foundation of the world, he surrenders himself back to his father in obedience. And as the son glorifies the father, so the father glorifies the son. So basically, since the Trinity is a thing, God the father was giving himself up in love to God the son and vice versa, even before the creation began. He says, from the highest to the lowest, self exists to be abdicated or given up. And by that abdication becomes the more truly self to be thereupon yet the more abdicated and so on forever. This is not a heavenly law that we can escape by remaining earthly, nor an earthly law which we can escape by being saved. What is outside the system of self-giving is not earth, nor nature, nor ordinary life, but simply and solely hell. Yet even hell derives from this law such reality as it has. That fierce imprisonment in the self is but the obverse of the self-giving, which is absolute reality. 
So basically, all of creation is meant to give itself in love to others. And that is the source of true joy. Anyone who sticks themselves and looks out for number one has their self slowly erode away. Use it or lose it. But mothers, husbands, fathers, children, and loving servants of God all know this to some extent. The more you give yourself away, the more you are truly yourself. And the cross is the greatest expression of it. On the cross, Jesus was the most fulfilled and genuine human being of all time. And we know that this is true at some level. But there's an incredibly powerful force at work in our minds that tells us to shut everyone out and only serve darkness. At the very least, we know it's completely unthinkable to give yourself away the way Jesus did. You're not supposed to die on the cross if you can help it. But deny it all you want, the crucified God is the absolute moral reality. The more you imitate him, the more fulfilled you'll be. And Jesus says something really similar in verses 7 and 8. He basically says no one who hasn't been born again will be able to begin to understand the people who have. Just like you probably don't understand why the wind goes where it goes. If you really follow the crucified God, then no one will understand you. No wonder. By the world's perspective, it's all nonsense. But that's what God's wisdom looks like. The wisdom of God is giving himself up on the cross. And at least for me, I think that wisdom is completely unattainable. It doesn't even begin to make sense to me sometimes. But the best way that I have found to start to make sense of it is the same way that Nicodemus did at the beginning of this passage. He said, we know that you've come from God. In other words, Nicodemus knew that Jesus was right. He just had no idea how to make sense of him. I think that's a good start. It's recognizing that even if we lack the wisdom to understand God, we know he's right. And we know even by the end of this passage, that Nicodemus probably left even more confused than he was when he came in. But over time in the book, it seems like Nicodemus really slowly came around to Jesus' side. In chapter 7, he argues in favor of Jesus against all the Pharisees. And then finally, in chapter 19, he actually helps to bury Jesus after he dies, even though you can't imagine any of his Pharisee buddies approving. It's all speculation, but is it possible that Nicodemus was slowly born again, just like Jesus said? And if that's true, maybe there's hope for us after all. All we have to do at first is recognize the wisdom of Christ who is high and lifted up on the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can't even begin to understand you on our own. But we know that your death on the cross was the most beautiful and honorable thing that has ever been done. We pray, God, that you would allow us to be born again by the miracle of your Holy Spirit so that we can become new people who live in the light of your kingdom. Help us to slowly recognize what it looks like to worship a crucified king wherever we go in life and to see the world through your wise eyes. In your name, amen.